What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Get ready for all the craziness of small business. It's exactly that craziness that makes it exciting and totally unbelievable. Small Business Radio is now on the air with your host, Barry Moltz. Well, thanks for joining this week's radio show. Remember, this is the final word in small business. Today has been doing since the beginning of the pandemic. I am recording this from my home to yours. For those keeping track, this is now show number 723. It's sponsored by Truly Financial, banking that puts money back into your business. Get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make by signing up for a free account. Go to www.trulyfinancial.com slash Barry. Well, my next guest says that growth really is not an option if you run a small business. He says that you have to grow or die. Philippe Buissou has spent three decades in Silicon Valley as an entrepreneur, a CEO, and a venture capitalist. He's a managing partner at Blue Dot Partners, a firm he co-founded focusing on top-line acceleration. At Apple, he was a director of the Worldwide Internet Commerce Group, which he founded and managed online Apple Store and grew its revenue from zero to $350 million. He holds a BS in mathematics, an MS in physics, a PhD in nonlinear physics and chaos theory. Philippe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. With all those degrees, you got to have a lot of stuff to talk about at dinner time. Yes. <laughs> so, so how do you go from having all of these technical degrees to really founding and running the online Apple Store? Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I'm really an entrepreneur at heart, and um, I actually wanted to be different. I didn't want to do the same thing as everybody else. So, I was thinking that if I understand how people conduct research in physics, that would give me an edge. It would, it would allow me to think a little bit differently, to look at the world differently, and to come up with ideas that, that maybe others people would not have. And, um, but I've always wanted to be in business. Uh, I like people. I really like to interact with people. And when you do research in physics, you work in a very small uh, you know, environment. There's not many, many people who are working on the same topic around the world. And so you have less exposure to people, and, and um, I, I like people, I, I just like to connect. So how did it really give you an edge? Because for a lot of these concepts we're talking about, nonlinear physics and chaos theory, as a business person my whole life, I can't even wrap my head around it. Well, I mean, chaos, every, most of I guess, I guess that's I, I business, with, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, I actually use that every day. Um, yeah, I am trying to bring order and common sense uh, in the heads of you know CEOs and, and business leaders and entrepreneurs it's very hard to step back and, and look at the, the real market. I call that the market, you know, getting the market truth because you're right in the middle of your business. You don't see things like, like other people. And so I, I kind of try, I, I come and I, I bring a perspective um, and, and I try to bring common sense as well, which is easy to lose when you're running and building a business. So talk to us about how the concept for the online Apple Store came about uh, and how you manage its growth. Yeah, I mean, in, in 19, I came up with this idea in 1997. Um, as you may remember, uh, the Internet was commercially born in August of 1995 when Netscape actually went public. Right. That's kind of when the time starts. And uh, in 1997, um, I went to Michael Spindler, who was the CEO of Apple at the time, and I said, you know, we need to sell direct over the Internet. And he thought I was crazy, which probably was right. right. Um, but um, I, I said, you know, look, we as Apple, we don't know our customers, our users of our products. We don't, they, they cannot buy directly from, from, from us. And I think we should have a direct experience. They should be able to interact with us and we should own the purchase uh, process. Uh, and of course, Michael didn't like the idea because we was conflicting with channels um, I went to uh, Gil Emilio was the CEO after Michael was the same thing. And then finally, you know, I met with Steve Jobs after we bought Next. And uh, within 10 minutes, Steve really understood the idea and was behind it. And 
That's how we launched the online store. And as you said, I managed it from zero to 350 million. And it's about $25 billion business today. And, and how does it feel to be right? Well, it's not, I don't really, I don't really feel any joy of being right. It's not about being right. It's about doing something that you believe in. And you may be right and you may be wrong. But I think you have to have the tenacity. You need to have the conviction that this is the right thing to do. And you're right to point that out. Now it's obvious that Apple right. should and, and should sell the right of an 30 years later, but in, right. 90, in 1997, the big debate was, well, why you're crazy? Nobody would ever put a credit card number over the internet. Right. That was the big debate. So it's, it's, it's not so much the vision. I mean, it's common sense, or it was common sense to me at the time. And I, I believed that the internet would be big, which it, which it became. And I said, we cannot transact, we cannot not transact over the internet. It just doesn't make sense. The hard part is the timing and the convincing within the organization to actually do it. And of course, with internet commerce, there were a lot of stops and starts in the 90s. So it all didn't go smoothly, right. especially with the, the crash in 2000. Well, you got a new yeah. book out. It's called Aligning the Dots, the, parad mm -hmm. the new paradigm to grow any business. Why do you say that you have to grow or die? Which, what if a small business owner is kind of happy where they're at? Well, they, they cannot be happy where they are because of just because of inflation. And in fact, we see it every day right now. So if your if your revenue is flat and inflation is galloping and, and there, then eventually, you know, your business is going to suffer because your gross margin and then your profitability will suffer. The other problem is that if you are not growing faster than your market, then mathematically your competition is, which means you're losing market share. So if you're not growing uh, then you're you're on the path to become irrelevant, and 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 by the way, if you um, want to create real and sustainable shareholder value, you have to grow faster than your business. If you raise any money, if you take money from VCs or P or private equity firms or, or even friends and family, they expect your business to grow. Otherwise, they would never invest. So. You have no choice. You have to grow. So you've came up with this new methodology, which I think is perfect for a physicist. It's called the A4 Precision Alignment, designed to accelerate any business. What is that? Well, the fundamental idea, so let me back up a little bit. I, I have been struggling for over 32 years where I've been here in Silicon Valley with the challenge of growth. And, and the question is, you know, I'm, I'm a business owner. I'm a CEO. I'm a business leader. What do I do on Monday morning at eight o'clock to grow faster? And it's a really deceptively simple question, but really hard to understand. It's a little bit like saying, what do I do on Monday morning at eight o'clock to be a good parent? And like, you don't even know where to start. So I, I, in 2014, I got an epiphany, which is I realized that the maximum growth rate of any business within that target market, always compared to that target market, that maximum growth rate can only be achieved when the company and its target market are well aligned. And then the question is, well, what does it mean to align my business with my target market? It turns out that there are four universal axes of alignment. And what's really stunning is that those four alignments are absolutely universal. So I can take a cafe on the left bank in Paris. I can take your business, Barry. I can take, you know, American Airlines or Bank of America. They apply in the exact same way. So and what are those four things? So the first one is that the claim of the business and the pain that the business is addressing have to be the same. So Barry, if you come to me with a headache and I show you a stomachache pill, you will never buy my pill because your pain is your head, not your stomach. That's the first axis. The second one is the message, which is the expression of the claim of the business and the perception, which is the understanding of what that business does. Those two things must be aligned. So if you come to me with a headache and I have a pill and I have the right pill for your headache, but I describe it to you in Korean, I'm assuming you don't speak Korean. No, not then, yet. <laughs> then you will never buy my pill because you're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? That's the second axis. The third one is the way customers want to buy and the way the product is sold in the marketplace have to be aligned. So if I said, Barry, you have to come here in the Bay Area in Palo Alto to buy the pill, you can say, well, wait a minute, I'm in Chicago or in the Midwest. Like, why can't I just walk to the pharmacy next door and buy it? And then the four axis of alignment is my favorite one called I stole it out of the Apple playbook. So as you said, I worked for Steve Jobs directly for about a year which is how I lost my hair, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but, I've heard a lot of those stories. But um, I, I actually learned a few lessons from Stephen. One of them was that I came to the realization that there is one and only one single business on this planet. 
I understood that everybody is in the exact same business. There are no two or three businesses, there's only one. And that unique business is the manufacturing and delivery of the light. Let me say that again, because this is really important. We are all in the business of manufacturing and delivering daylight for our customers. So the, the fourth axis of alignment is that the expected daylight that the customer has and what is actually delivered to that customer have to be aligned. There cannot be a mismatch between what they expect and what's delivered to them. So imagine you take my pill for your headache and after five minutes, you got a rash on your skin and you feel dizzy and your headache is worse. Obviously, that's not what you expected. I am not meeting your daylight expectation. And therefore, I'm not going to grow. So, so if, I want to take each of these a little bit further, if I could, starting with the course. first one. Do you find that a lot of uh, people don't understand the pain that they're solving for their customers? And so there's a misalignment. They just want to solve whatever they want to solve. Yes. I mean, there are two issues. One is they don't understand at a very fundamental level what the pain is. And the second thing is because they are not focused on customer segments, they, they go after many different market segments, and each of those segments actually have a slightly different pain. So there is not one universal pain that they can express for the particular business they are in, and we see that all the time. So, Philippe, does that mean that they have to create different avatars, different profiles for the different segments of their market? Well, I always recommend that they need to be focused. In fact, it's one of the three lessons I learned from Steve is, is you know, the, this hyper-focused uh, uh, you know, requirement. And... I think that, and I've been a VC, I invested 43 million, I looked at 2,600 companies wow. over my life. that's a lot of reading. I've read a lot of death certificates for companies <laughs> and startups, and I can tell you the one I read all the time is, you know, is death by lack of focus. And I think it's really, and this is something that I learned, you know, was profound with Steve, is the ability to say no and to decide what you not do, and that's really, really hard. And And I think that's the problem. If you have you know, if you're a small business and you have, you know, four market segments, like you can do it. I, I always say you can only pick one. Which one are you going to go after? Yeah. One of the famous quotes that I've seen of Steve Jobs is he talks about ruthless prioritization, how you got to figure out how to do less yeah, exactly. rather, rather than do more. The second one is really perception. Can people really understand uh, really what you're saying? Is that just a matter of marketing or is it something else? Well, it is a matter of marketing. It is a matter of translating your claim, your unique and defendable and exciting claim, into words and messages that a prospect immediately understands. And so it's, it's, it's the exercise of how do I express my claim in the prospect's word and world so that they can understand, not in my own world, because a lot of companies tend to def to describe what the product does, and that's not what people buy. People buy you know, a, a, a solution to the pain. You know, now, and so, number three was they have to want to really buy it how you're selling it. But it seems to me that some industries, you don't have to, I mean, they don't make it very convenient for you to buy it or they don't make it very convenient for you to get it because there's a shortage of that kind of product or service in the marketplace. Yeah, but that's not, that's still wrong. I mean, you want to have a frictionless transaction. If somebody is prepared to buy you need to make sure that the way they're going to buy and purchase the product is, is as easy as possible and fits their world. And, and a lot of companies don't pay enough attention. I would argue that Amazon is worth, you know, what it is today because of the frictionless transactions. Absolutely. One, one click and so on and so forth and prime. And people underestimate what it takes and the effort it takes to buy their product and they need to fix that. And, and the fourth one is, which I find uh, really interesting, I really do believe we are in the business of delight because study mm -hmm. after study, Philippe, does show that people will pay a lot more for value and for a great experience. And mm -hmm. especially American companies, we don't focus that much on that. How come? Well, I, I don't really know why. I think, I think it's a massive mistake. I think people misunderstand that they are not in the business of selling a product or a service. They are in the business of selling an experience. And if you deliver a great experience, it really doesn't matter what the product is in a way. And, um, you know, and that's what Apple is remarkable. Absolutely. Like we spend so much time and energy understanding every single details of, of the, the delightfulness journey. And I would encourage any entrepreneur to revisit that and look at it and say, okay, well, how do I make that even better? Now, there's another point I want to make, which is critical, which is the delight 
expectation is set by the business. So you may set a low delight expectation and, and deliver that, and that's perfectly okay. If I go to a McDonald's restaurant to have a meal, it's a very different from a three-star Michelin restaurant, but my expectation is much lower. And so therefore, I'm, the alignment between what I expect and what I deliver is realized. And that's what McDonald's is so successful. And the three-star Michelin restaurant can be a very successful business as well. Right. I think the delight is different. I think one of the things, if I go to McDonald's in Boston or if I go to a McDonald's in Bud- Budapest, it's going to be the same. That's part of the that's delight, right? right? Yeah. Or it's kid-friendly. That's part of the delight. Or the French fries are exactly what I remember. That's part of the delight. So as you said, mm-hmm. it's different kinds of delights. Yeah, that's so exactly that, right. Well, Philippe, the title of the book, again, is called Aligning the Dots. Where can people get a copy and learn more about the work you're doing? Well, they can go to they can uh, go to aligningthedots.com. They can go to bluedotspartners.com, which is the firm that I'm managing. And they can uh, also find the book on Amazon. Philippe, thank you so much. This is AM820, WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. I just hate the way big banks treat small businesses. They're always a gotcha. High fees, no rewards, minimum balances. So what's in it for you? Now comes a bank that gets small businesses. Truly Financial gives you a corporate visa card, a checking account, and up to 2.5% cash back on every single dollar your business spends. That's why I'm partnering with them to bring you a special offer. Go to trulyfinancial.com slash Barry and learn about how you can get all these benefits for your company and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, How to Make the Changes You Already Know You Need to Make When You Open an Account. So go to trulyfinancial.com slash Barry and truly spelled T-R-U-L-Y and get a free copy of my book, Change Masters. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moltz. Now on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Too many American entrepreneurs are focused on business that is only in the U.S. My next guest says it's critical to take a more global view to be successful. Nadia Michelle is a journalist and author of a new book called 40 Lessons, What the New Entrepreneurs Can Teach Us About Technology, Geopolitical, and the Coming Reformation. Nadia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I think the title of the book is really interesting. Who are the new entrepreneurs? So basically, you know, in the book, you'll find the stories of 40 entrepreneurs from all over the world, different parts of the world. The new entrepreneurs are are those who are disrupting um, the status quo, disrupting their industries and really uh, who are on the cutting edge of technology, who are on the cutting edge of ideas. And um, and so there's really a wide array of new entrepreneurs. Um, as you know, you know, the the landscape is changing. Um, we live in a in a, an economy of ideas. And so there's really a vast array. So give us one of the examples of one of the new entrepreneurs that is interviewed in your book. Sure. So um, one of the ones that I love to talk about, because I think this is really interesting and, and topical and timely, is um, is is this guy who's basically creating a water farm in the U- UAE. Um, he's not the first to do this in this part of the world, but it's a new technology that basically sucks the humidity out of the air, the H2O part, um, and, and then creates water. And this is so important right now. Um, you know, studies say that by 2030, there's going to be a serious shortage of potable water. Um, and so many countries are already using this technology, um, but in small pockets. And it was actually developed here in Arizona. And so this new entrepreneur is really, um, he was actually an executive at Pepsi and he left the company and started his own uh, businesses. And one of them is this. And this is a type of uh, new businesses that people would never think of. And it's probably going to be, you know, increasingly popular uh, in the coming years. Why do you say it's a business, a new business that people wouldn't think of? Isn't it just a, a traditional business idea that's addressing a common issue, you know, perhaps of climate change? Well, the thing is, it's not a technology, first of all, that most people um, wouldn't think of or know of. In my experience, I've been actually covering the technology since it was first developed. And it's still, um, you know, kind of obscure. If you search it on the Internet, you'll find small articles 
Uh, you'll find a lot of them, but it's really quite revolutionary. And um, I, I would guess that most people you would ask would be surprised to know that that exists. And so not only as an entrepreneur to, who wanted to start a business, but as an investor who was looking for, you know, industries that are going to be growing, it's, it's an important thing to know about because, you know, I would bet that it's going to grow for sure exponentially. And so I, I, I don't know. Did you know about the technology? Oh, no, I just it seems to me that it's just like, well, there's a business problem and someone's developed a new technology. Um, I don't it doesn't really seem I mean, what, what should we really learn from that? Well, the main thing is what like one of the main premises of the book is that knowledge about what's happening in the world is key if you want to, you know, be able to come up with these new ideas, know where to invest your money. And so the point of that is that knowledge is super important, right? Because if you don't know about these new technologies, how are you going to know, you know, what, how you can come up with an idea and, and fill that need, uh, you know, that's not being met, right? Mm -hmm. And and why would you think of f filling that need um, unless there was a pressing uh, you know, case. So for example, you know, most people in, in the U S don't have a shortage of drinking water, right. right. In, in general, until, unless there's a hurricane and then everyone buys all the water or, or, or the Colorado river's drying up. So they may exactly. have something like that. Yeah. We're no, pretty I think, short -sighted. Yeah. no yeah. I, I think you're right. I mean, Americans, unfortunately just really focus on the things that are around them rather than taking a worldview. Is that why in the subtitle you mentioned geopolitics? What, what's your definition of that and how is it really affecting entrepreneurship? Right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So actually, as an example, <clears throat> so we do, you know, most, most Americans I come across like on a day-to-day -day basis have never really even left the U.S. or maybe they've been to Mexico. Unfortunately, you're right. Yeah. I mean, um, and that's okay. That's probably true in many countries in the world. But when you do, you realize how connected we all are. And so as an example, I was just writing an article about this. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, they wanted to put these, uh, you know, killer robots on the streets of San Francisco and everybody kind of freaked out about it. I'm sure, did you hear about yes, that? Yes, of course. Yeah. So right now, what's happening in Ukraine is that basically Ukraine is kind of gaining an upper hand using drone boats, right? Uh, that's a chapter in my book, actually, about how the military is leveraging AI in their equipment. And this basically is going to define all the conflicts, you know, moving forward. And so what's interesting is that, you know, you ask an average American if they care that they're using drones in, in Ukraine, even though most people say they care about Ukraine, eh, they're not so concerned. But when it comes down to their streets, you know, it's like, no, we can't have those. But the truth is that whether they're using them in San Francisco or in Ukraine, the technology is there. And and at some point it can hit home, right? So why are we less concerned about these global technologies when they're thousands of miles away when really we shouldn't be? We should be very, very much aware of what's happening. Well, that's a very American thing to do, right? I mean, it's someplace else. It's not here because there's so many things there are other places and not here. And I think you're right. That's the short-sightedness of a lot of American entrepreneurs. You also talk about in the title of the book, uh, the last part is the coming reformation. It almost sounds religious. <laughs> well, some people believe it is, right? Um, certainly Jehovah's Witnesses would think that that's happening. But what I mean by the Reformation is more kind of a reshaping of the world as we know it. And that's happening right now. You know, um, you may have heard that over the last two or three years, technology has changed more than over the last 15 years, right? And so what that means is that the world is changing so quickly that we probably don't have really even a chance to adapt as human beings. You know, we've been around for thousands and thousands of years and the rate at which we evolved is much slower than the rate at which technology is evolving. And so, so the point is that, you know, really the world is changing so much that it's almost like a reformation, almost like a religious event in, in the sense that our world will be completely different than what we've, are, are we, you know, we've always known. And the reason I wrote the book is that one of the biggest concerns about what's happening is that technology and AI are basically taking over our lives. They're taking over our jobs. You know, in China, it's happening at a much faster rate. They already have news anchors that are AI. You know, pretty soon you're going to be seeing robots everywhere. Um, we deal with a lot of AI in our day-to-day -day life instead of human beings when we call places. And so 
that fear that, you know, this will take over our lives is very real. And the only way we can really stay on top of it um, and fight it is to work on our human qualities, the things that make us different from those machines. And people sometimes forget that. And so that's kind of the, the lessons that I derive from each of the stories um, in these entrepreneurial stories is within this technological, con you know, context what are the qualities that, that actually are making them successful? And so you need to have those and you need to really uh, develop those. Now, do you talk about the, the fear of an AI-driven world? Should we really be afraid or we just have to figure out from a job standpoint how we can reinvent ourselves so I guess humans are still needed, <laughs> we're not replaced by AIs? Or is it something like it's going to be the Terminator all over again? Well... I'm not a fortune teller, <laughs> so should we be afraid? I think we should be afraid enough that we don't um, turn our backs and not pay attention because what's really important is to to kind of regulate these industries and set ethical standards for the use of these technologies. And the more people are involved in that, the better. When there's only a small group of people, you know, making these decisions, that puts you know, millions of people, of people at risk. And so that's why it's important to know about them and to have a little bit of fear, yes, because potentially, you know, once you start really diving into all of this, there's genuine fear. I mean, you, there was a Google executive, you know, who was fired in the summer. I don't know if you heard right, about I remember him. it said that it was sentient. I had another executive yeah. on the show, not from Google, from someplace else, that said that his AI was sentient. That, I mean, I would love to hear his story. I'd love <laughs> to know send, who that was. I'll send you but, the, the broadcast. Yeah. So this is no longer like science fiction. It's not, you know, we're not being conspiracy theorists here. That's a real concern. It's a real possibility, especially with learning AI that teaches itself. You know, once it starts teaching itself, at what point does it stop? And, and what is consciousness, right? If you connect enough dots, maybe you become conscious. And at what point do you make your own decisions as a machine? And that's the point where... Could, could they potentially do things that humans don't like and, and no longer be under, you know, the, the, the guidance of humans? It's a possibility. And so, yes, should we be afraid? Yeah, probably a little. So the thing that I guess I'm more and more afraid of is crypto, right? Because hmm. it seems to be that uh, it's something that we should be involved in, but then these things keep happening, like what happened with FTX. What's your take on it? Well, um, I've been also, you know, following crypto for quite a while now. I have no doubt that cryptocurrency is the future. There's no doubt in my mind. And one of the evidence uh, of this is how um, governments are now trying to create cent uh, central digital currencies, right? right? Because r what's upsetting to them is that it's really out of their control. And once governments no longer have control over the finances of the people, well, that can be a big, big problem that will spell the demise of the governments as we know them. And so they're realizing that now. And so they're really trying to take control of it. So the question is, which cryptocurrencies will survive? Um, the ones that are currently there, what will happen with uh, the central digital currency? I'm personally a believer that, you know, the blockchain is definitely a technology that will continue to evolve. Um, and I think that um, Bitcoin is probably going to stick around and, you know, some of the main ones, Ethereum. Um, yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I'm not a financial advisor, but if I had to bet, I would say that th those two will either really, really thrive or thrive a little because, you know, they're already ad being adopted by so many um, key players. We're talking with Nadia Michelle. She's the author of a book called 40 Lessons, What the New Entrepreneurs Can Teach Us About Technology, Geopolitics, and the Coming Reformation. One of the difficult parts for a lot of entrepreneurs is to disrupt their own industry because they're doing well enough that actually it's in their best interest not to disrupt the industry. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you be a disruptor and evolve your business while not sacrificing the current revenue stream you got? Well... Um, this kind of goes back to, you know, the human aspect that I kind of uh, talk about in my book. I like to call it gracious disruption, um, especially in the U.S. You know, people are pretty aggressive. They like to sometimes put other people down or other industries down in order to highlight their strengths. And I think that's the completely wrong approach. Um, and I think that 
being gracious. As an example, you know, there was this uh, man, this uh, editor in chief of GQ in the Middle East um, that I interviewed for, for my podcast and who's in the book. And he was brought in. He was the youngest ever. And this was like a new title in the Middle East, GQ. Right. And the first cover he has is um, this actor, Rami Malek, who's the Egyptian uh, guy that portrayed um, the guy in Queen. Freddie, Freddie Mercury, Mercury, right? right? Yeah. Gay character, gay character on the cover. And then a headline about a column by Queer Eye. So he did this in Dubai in a place where homosexuality wow. is very much uh, illegal still to this day. This is just a couple of years ago. And um, and it went by pretty smoothly. And I was pretty surprised. But so how did he do that? Right. How did this guy keep his kind of uh, he was kind of a class act, if I can put it that way. Right. Because when you disrupt. So this is an example of a guy who works for a magazine. Right. But you could apply this across the board when you disrupt. If you are classy about it if you don't boast about it if you don't put other people down if you kind of do your disruption in a way where you know the content speaks for itself and it has a purpose or the the idea or whatever you're doing you don't have to be a disruptive person you your actions your ideas your product should be disruptive not you as the person and so and i think that can help the product or whatever you're doing be a lot more successful because then you've gained the uh, you've kept the respect of of everyone around you of your industry if that makes any sense that makes sense well Nani, one more question as we look into uh 2023 uh, i want you to look into your crystal ball we've got obviously the war going on in europe we've got inflation um you know we've got supply chain issues what's your view of the world economy what's going to happen next year Oh, I, I didn't realize that I was playing the role of fortune teller. Oh, today. just 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 <laughs> give us your take, just like anybody else's take. Okay, well, let me give you a couple of things that might be of interest to your listeners. So, you know, if you're in, into business, you're probably kind of trying to navigate social media and advertising. So, social media um, companies are probably going to be moving away from uh, things like Instagram. Things that are very algorithm heavy and going more towards platforms that are community builders, for example, you know, Substack, which I'm on, um, but there are other ones, Discord, where you build communities. This right. is where uh, I think a lot of companies are going to be going. In terms of the economy, well, we know for a fact that, uh, well, there's a report that predicts that by 2025, uh, renewable energy will overtake uh, the coal industry. And so if you're at all involved in the coal industry, now is probably a good time to make that move. Um and yeah, and as we know, which is something I talk about in my book, you know, a lot, you know, a lot is happening. A lot of things are shifting. A lot of things are going east. Um, you know, the U.S. is is changing. I'm I'm uh, I love the U.S. And when I go out into the streets, having lived all over the world, I see, you know, uh, a beautiful foundation. I like, you know, how this country, um, you know, has still has this kind of. American dream um, that, you know, I don't I, I'm not sure how to put it, but the, the it's a rich country and people have it good here. Put it that I, way. I wish and people so, would realize I wish I, people would realize that, Nadia. Yeah. So we're very fortunate and people should realize that more and be grateful for that um, and, and continue to build on that. And I do think that uh, I'm optimistic that that will continue to happen. I hope you're right. Nadia, where can people learn more about the work you're doing? So um, they can find me on my website, www.nadiamichelle.co. Um, my book is available on Amazon, 40 Lessons. And I have a podcast called TMR that you can find on any podcast platform. And uh, yeah, pr I'm pretty easy to find. So I'd love to hear from uh, your listeners to hear what they think about um, some of the ideas we discussed today. Nadia, thanks so much. This is AM820 WCPT in Chicago. We'll be right back. Did you know that you can lose up to 5% on an invoice just because it's an international wire transfer? I know a lot of people are dealing with the same nonsense, and for small business owners, it hurts. I was dealing with the same painful fees too until I found Truly Financial. I like that they're the everyday global bank that business owners actually need. In fact, I like them so much that I'm partnering with them to bring you this special offer. Open a Truly Financial account and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make. It's time to start saving on bank fees. No pain, all gain. Go to www.trulyfinancial.com slash Barry and truly is spelled T-R-U-L-Y and get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters.
My work with thousands of small business owners over the last 20 years inspired me to write my next book on how to make changes. Well, that's not exactly true. More accurately, my frustration and the resulting challenges working with small business owners forced me to write this new book. Um, Let me explain. I'm often asked by companies and small business owners that I don't know to help them. Typically, they're feeling stuck by a problem and their companies can't move forward. After analyzing the situation, we mutually decide on a go-forward strategy. I help them assemble a detailed plan to make any changes and the critical success factors and actions that need to be completed. They agree that taking these actions will help them solve their issue for their company and make them more money. And then almost nothing happens. Unfortunately, most small business owners implement a few easy steps, but never take the critical or difficult ones that could make a difference. This has long frustrated me since we worked really hard on putting together this plan And at the beginning, we were both excited about the result. I wrote my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make to figure out why small business owners do not make the changes or take the actions that they know will help them reach their goals. Where is the gap between sincere intent to make these changes and the actions to actually do it? What holds most people back and keeps them stuck on the same path over and over again? Why are they still so comfortable in not making these changes and staying on a path that clearly doesn't work for them? One thing is it's not adding to their happiness and it's not adding to their feeling success. What steps do they need to take to slowly break free and start to make those changes today that will help them in the long run? In my new book, I reveal much of the psychological research around why change is just so hard for so many people and real-life strategies that every small business owner can employ right now to make the changes they need to make in their companies to grow. So get my new book, Change Masters. Remember, I'm not trying to convince you to make a change, but rather help you make the changes you already know you need to take. Stick around to get your small business unstuck. More of Small Business Radio with Barry Moltz, now on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. In the current period of social and political unrest, conversations about identity are becoming more frequent and more difficult on subjects like critical race theory, gender equity in the workplace, and LGBTQ inclusive classrooms. Many of us are understandably fearful about saying the wrong thing. That fear, unfortunately, can sometimes prevent us from speaking up at all, depriving people from marginalized groups of support and stalling progress towards a more just and inclusive society. My next guest is David Glasgow, who's the co-author of Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. The book shows potential allies that these conversations don't have to be so overwhelming. He shows how to manage diverse teams at work, navigating issues of inclusion at college, or challenging biased comments at family barbecues. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I was interested in this book because increasingly, I think a lot of the wisdom of society says, all right, just don't say anything. And that's not the right thing either, right? Exactly. In fact, these days, I think it's not as safe as what it used to be to just not say anything because... Uh, more and more people are calling out even that silence, not as uh, remaining neutral, but as being complicit with uh, an unjust status quo. So I think it's kind of essential that people do learn how to participate in these conversations more effectively. Yeah, I mean, I think during World War Two, there was a famous author that said, you know, if you're if you're silent about something, you're really on the side of the oppressor. And I really do believe that. Exactly. And that, that I think, is what uh, especially younger people are calling out that behavior a lot more and more. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are so scared of having these conversations. So what was the motivation for this book? Because you and your co-author are both attorneys. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, So my background is is an employment and anti-discrimination law attorney. So I used to look at these issues purely through a legal and compliance lens about what's actually going to get the person or the company in trouble. Uh, But what I realized and what my co-author Kenji Yoshino realized was that in order to create more inclusive cultures and a more inclusive society, you really need to build above the law because there are so many uh, daily infinitesimal conversations that people are having that the law is never going to be able to address, right? So the only way to kind of change culture on a more sustained level is to actually give people the tools to have 
more effective conversations about these subjects. So we still take pride in being lawyers and we still admire people who use the law as a tool, but we do a lot of work with people on the more kind of coaching level or with organizations on cultural change uh, to help them uh, get better at these conversations as well. So it seems like to me, like 10 years ago, we were making a lot of progress towards being a much more open society. And now it seems like things have kind of reverted back some. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a bit of push and pull and there's backlash effects, right? So I think a lot of the kind of forward momentum that we were seeing around all sorts of issues of inclusion, whether that be uh, same-sex marriage or other LGBTQ rights or the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or Stop Asian Hate, you know, all of these kind of forward movements, naturally that is going to engender some backlash. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that people who are on the other side of those conversations are really pushing back hard. So let's say you do make a misstep. Like one of the missteps I always make with gender neutral folks is that I have a hard time saying they because I keep thinking it as plural, not necessarily as a singular thing. How do you when when you are called out like that, what should you do for that type of misstep? Yeah, so I think for something like that, um, typically even the sort of person who's on the receiving end of that uh, is going to think that that's not you know, the most horrible thing that that anyone could have done, right? Usually it's an innocent mistake along the lines that you just outlined then. And so we have a non-binary student who actually gave a class presentation on this topic and said, please, when you make a mistake like that, don't over-apologize. Because one of the mistakes that people make is to sort of go on and on about how awful they feel and what a terrible person they are for doing that. And that just makes the other person feel even more uncomfortable because then they feel pressure to sort of comfort and reassure you and tell you that everything's okay. And so in a situation like that, I think just a really simple, straightforward apology, like, oh, sorry, you know, um, I I meant to say they, and then, you know, commit to learning and doing better the next time, I think is all that's necessary. And what what are some of the other reactions? What else should you do if you make a mistake? Yeah. So I think, you know, we have a whole chapter in the book on building resilience because one of the uh, things that often occurs when people make mistakes in these conversations is that they entirely shut down because it's so incredibly uncomfortable and they feel like it turns them into a terrible person. And so we want people to actually process their mistakes a little bit differently and think of them a little bit more like say, making a mistake when you're learning a musical instrument or learning a language, right? If I make a mistake when I'm playing the piano, I don't think I'm a horrible person. I'm never going to play the piano again. I just think, well, I'll practice and get better next time. And so we want people to apply a similar growth mindset to these conversations, right, where you make a mistake and instead of being overwhelmed by the emotion of it, sort of the guilt or the fear or anger or whatever emotion you're experiencing, we have some tools to help people build resilience so that they can kind of pick themselves back up and and re-enter these conversations. And And what are some of those tools? So a good example of this is to name and reframe your emotions. So oftentimes people shut down because of overwhelming discomfort, but that discomfort really shows up as what we think of as four primary emotions. So fear, anger, guilt, or hopelessness, right? So fear is a really common one. If you have a conversation and you make a mistake and you think, oh my goodness, I'm going to get canceled, right? Um, Or everyone's going to think that I'm a bigot or something along those lines. And so what we want people to do, according to the psychology research, just naming that emotional experience itself reduces the harmful effects of that emotion so that you're no longer overwhelmed by the fear because you're able to actually identify it and say, well, what I'm feeling right now is fear and here's the reason why I'm feeling that. And then we want to help you reframe that emotion. So in that example of, you know, if I share my views on this topic, I'm going to get canceled and everyone's going to think that I'm a bigot reframing that to say, well, you know, I can share my views on this topic respectfully, and if people criticize me for it, I can handle it, right? Or similarly with guilt, like a good example of guilt would be, let's say you mix up two people who belong to the same racial or ethnic group, right? You refer to them by each other's name. Now, sometimes you might think, oh my goodness, I feel so horrible that I made that mistake. Instead of feeling overwhelmed by that guilt, what we want you to do is name that you're feeling the guilt, and then reframe that in a more positive light. So the reframed response would be, I made a mistake, but everyone makes mistakes sometimes, so I'm going to learn their names and do better next time. You know, it's interesting to me because some people listening to this conversation will probably say, David, you know, this is all silly. You know, I saw a flag 
in um, in Arizona on someone's truck, and it said basically Trump 2024, and I'll use a different word, screw your feelings, right? That all this whole feelings right. things is just kind of silly. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, well, this book is really written for people who really do want to right. improve their, their <laughs> it's not conversation. For the, it's not for the other folks that don't care about other <laughs> yeah, people's feelings. I, and I mean, which is not to say, you know, that people can't, you know, improve, right? So I wouldn't write people off entirely, but it really is intended for people who are already sort of bought into the basic premises of, you know, I want to treat people well, I want to, you know, be respectful and inclusive in my behavior. I just need the tools for how to do that because I'm worried that I'm going to make mistakes, right? So people who come into the conversation with the attitude of, you know, I don't care at all about your feelings, I can say whatever I want and you just need to suck it up. This probably is not the book for them. So what do you do? I think a lot of people, uh, David, are uncomfortable when they come into conflict. They're in a conversation with so- where someone says something or they disagree, you know, like, oh, you know, this whole, you know, gender neutral kind of thing is just silly. There's only men and women. What, what do you say? I mean, I believe you got to speak up. What is your advice? Yeah. So in the, we actually have a chapter on disagreement because one of the things that I sort of find regrettable about some some work in this field on diversity, equity, and inclusion is it doesn't seem to really explore or acknowledge the fact that people are going to fundamentally disagree about these issues sometimes. And it is okay to disagree, right? So we come in with particular priors about these, these subjects. So I'm very much in favor of, you know, inclusion across all of these dimensions. But, you know, there are going to be instances in life where you encounter a real disagreement. And so we, again, want to kind of give people tools for how to handle that disagreement respectfully. And just to give you a kind of example of one of the tools that we use in the book, we want people to, at the very least, acknowledge that a disagreement means something very different to them, usually, if they belong to the kind of dominant or majority group in the conversation than it does to the person on the other side of the conversation who's personally implicated in it. So if you um, are cisgender, right, if you are not transgender yourself and you're talking about, you know, issues of gender identity uh, that you're describing, that might just be an interesting philosophical debate for you, right, or kind of a policy question that you're debating. But for the person that you're speaking to, that might really deeply implicate their fundamental humanity. And so they hear the disagreement very differently. They hear it not as a policy issue. They hear it as this person doesn't think I'm equal to them as a human being, right? So at the very least, when you're engaging in these disagreements, we want you to start by actually openly acknowledging where the other person sits on that scale. You could even say, you know, look, to me, this is a sort of policy question that we're talking about, but I really understand that for you, this is much more personal. And so I'm going to try to honor and respect that when we're having this conversation. You know, it's like uh, Congress just passed the, you know, Equality and Marriage Act for, for same-sex marriage. And I think for those of us that are are not involved in a same-sex relationship, we, I, I say to myself, oh, that's really nice. But to people that are involved in the same-sex marriage, that's a matter of their survival, of identity of who they are. So it is important. Exactly. And so I think, you know, even just it's not going to make the conversation magically go well just by making that acknowledgement. But I think it does improve it because it shows that you have the skill to recognize what something means to the person who is, it's like a, it's an exercise of empathy, right? So as a first step in disagreement, we really think that's a critical acknowledgement. And so how do you handle this as a small business owner, as a manager and leader in your organizations? Because if you're kind of a successful company, it's going to be diverse. These types of things are going to come up uh, and these conflicts also will happen. How do you lead the company through them? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think a big part of this is is being generous to people who are learning and growing, right? Because we all make mistakes in these conversations. So whether you're a business leader or you're an employee, there are going to be, as you say, conflicts that take place. And we want to create a sort of culture where those mistakes are not immediately, people don't get immediately cancelled when they make them, right? So we think that one of the most controversial aspects of the work that we have and what we write about in the book is that we think that you should be allies, not just to the people who are affected by bias, but also to the people who make mistakes, right? Who are the sources of non-inclusive behavior. And because we think that that actually helps people grow, that having compassion for people who make mistakes actually leads to greater accountability rather than just immediately condemning and canceling them. So I think one of the things that a leader can do 
is really not just model for their employees what it means to have effective conversations, right? Like not running away from them, using the kind of tools that, that I've described about being resilient and disagreeing respectfully, but then also helping people who make mistakes grow past those mistakes rather than immediately cancelling them. Because I think that kind of culture of inclusion uh, will ultimately benefit everybody. Yeah, and I like what the book talks about. It really says that you should really adopt a learning posture because as a leader, if you say, listen, we're all learning here, that I think sends a good signal. Exactly. And this connects very much with the you know, Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety, right? Where if you want to create a climate of psychological safety on your team, one of the key ways that you can do that is by showing fallibility as a leader. So exactly as you just said, I think sometimes as leaders, people feel pressure to uh, project an image that they have it all together and that they know everything and that they're always going to get it right. Um, but to the contrary, I think, especially in these conversations, just signaling to people or even saying directly, I'm still learning uh, here. I don't have this all figured out is going to go a long way. You know, it's interesting because I also think there's a difference in the generations. I mean, for me and my children, I'm Gen X. They're in their 20s. You know, it's no big deal for them to be, for someone there to be non-binary or for someone to be transgender. Um, it's very different than, I think, people that are like myself who are 60 years old. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the reasons why these conversations are challenging is because of exactly that kind of generational conflict. People from younger generations are entering the workforce already completely fluent and comfortable in this terminology. And they're coming in and they're saying things like, you know, I want to have forums in our workplace about white supremacy in this workplace, right? And then often older people in that workplace will react to that by saying, like, what are you talking about? You know, because they think of white supremacy as being something quite distinct from what the younger people think of it as. So I think that's another challenge that people really have to navigate, especially in the workplace, is those multi-generational conflicts. The last question I want to ask you, David, talk a little bit about your work at NY, the NYU School of Law and at the Center for Diversity, and Inclusion and Belonging. What kinds of things are you guys taking up? Yeah, so, you know, we work a lot uh, internally within the law school with students teaching programs, running programs, etc. But a big part of what we do is working with um, external organizations. So that's companies, law firms, nonprofits outside of the law school who come to us for help in education and training work around their own internal workplace culture. So we'll go in and help them design and build and execute uh, trainings uh, for their staff on issues exactly like these. In fact, you know, the way we came to this book was that one of the huge barriers that we saw of creating a more inclusive workplace was that people were really terrified of saying the wrong thing. And so people would do exactly as you open this conversation and then run away from them and avoid these conversations. So we have, uh, we do a lot of work with uh, large companies um, to sort of help them on those programs. Well, David, I appreciate you being on the show. Where can people learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, so if you want, uh, people can go to our uh, website, uh, law.nyu.edu forward slash centers forward slash belonging. So I know that that's a bit of a mouthful. So you could also just Google the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging and you'll find us. David, thanks so much. And I want to thank everyone for joining this week's radio show. I got to thank our sponsor, Truly Financial, banking that puts money back into your business. Get a free copy of my new book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make by signing up for a free account. Go to www.trulyfinancial.com slash Barry. I want to thank our incredible staff, our booking producer, Sarah Schaffrin, our in-studio producer, Lady B, our marketing manager, Courtney Gilchrist. If you're serious about being successful in 2023, give me a call, 773-837-8250, or email me at barry at molds.com. Remember, love everyone, trust the few, empower your own canoe. Have a profitable and passionate week. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. You can find Barry Moltz on the web at barrymoltz.com or more episodes of Small Business Radio at smallbizradioshow.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.